Have you been struggling to make solid cinematic films? Do you watch other filmmakers and wonder why their products look so good? You need training. Good, specialized training. Something that is easy to digest and that you can take safely at home. I'm not talking about college. I'm talking about full-time filmmaker. Parker Wahlbeck and his team have put together an amazing course with over 400 training videos. Everything from Wedding Video Pro with Jake Weisler to how to edit with Premiere or Final Cut. Imagine getting proper, real-world training you can do at home. Imagine the impact that would have on your work, your skills increase, your quality increases, and then so do your prices. Click on our affiliate link below, take the free online training on their top 10 secrets to achieving cinematic shots, and see what full-time filmmaker can do for you. We did it, and it propelled our business. Welcome to the Wedding Filmmaking for Beginners podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode because we are going to be talking about extreme ownership in wedding filmmaking. Right now, you're probably saying to yourself, what does that even mean? But I'm going to break all this stuff down to you. So, you know, what we're going to cover today is the concept of what extreme ownership is, how it applies to you and your business, and why you should be doing it. This conversation is going to be a little bit brutal. It's a no-nonsense look at yourself and how you should be reacting to your environment. So buckle up, get ready, and we're going to go into some military mumbo-jumbo with me talking about what extreme ownership is. And I'm going to be using examples from uh, weddings that we've done and that kind of stuff and what what I actually did to improve from it. So let's go into just part one. You know, what is extreme ownership? So extreme ownership is this. It's this book. So if you're watching the YouTube channel, I'm holding the book Extreme Ownership in my hand. It was written by a Navy SEAL commander named Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Uh, They based the book off of what they did in Ramadi, Iraq in the year 2007. They, uh, They go through a ton of leadership traits. You know, we call it decentralized command, prioritize and execute, planning, cover and move. It's just they they go through each leadership trait and then they associate it to an experience that they had in Ramadi when they were clearing out insurgents and that kind of stuff. So I don't don't know if I said this, but they're both Navy SEALs. Uh, Both of them are Silver Star recipients. So there, that's, that's a pretty big deal for those of you that aren't in the military or, you know, that's, that's an unbelievably big deal to receive an award like that. Um, so the entire crux of the book is the concept of extreme ownership. And what that means is that as a leader, you are responsible for everything full stop. It's, it's your fault. You are the leader and you are responsible for anything that happens when something is going on. Now, where extreme ownership kind of takes it to the next level is let's say I'm second shooting for you and I did something wrong. So you're probably saying, 
How is that my fault? It's easy. You didn't train the person right. You didn't have clear communications with the person. You didn't, you know, clearly articulate what they should have been doing. But then on my side, it's also my fault. So the other pinnacle to extreme ownership is while you're saying it's your fault because you didn't train me, I'm saying it's my fault because one, I didn't seek out the training. One, I didn't clearly communicate to you that I didn't understand what I was doing, that kind of stuff. And you notice that you will grow exponentially faster when you start to embrace these kind of, these concepts. So you, you never want to blame it on your team or, you know, like say something as simple as like, oh, you know, my second shooter didn't have a shot in focus. Like you're just, you're playing a blame game. You don't blame other people. You sit down and you evaluate how you got to a position to where your second shooter didn't have something in focus. And I guarantee you the finger will more than likely be pointing back to you once you start to evaluate like, hey, did I clearly explain to that second shooter uh, what his role was, what his responsibility was? Did I actually look to see if he knew how to use the camera? Has he shot weddings before? Like what, like you start to really get nitpicky in like, what could I have done to have ensured that that person was functioning on the level that I expected them to. And that's extreme ownership because you'll learn from that one incident, like, Hey, I need to make sure that this person understands, you know, how to pull focus, you know, with a, with the GH five or how to, you know, how to use back button focus or something like that. You'll realize that these things start to click in. So Right now, you're probably saying to yourself, well, you know, in general terms, how does this, how does uh, what a Navy SEAL is talking about for leadership apply to what I'm doing in the wedding industry? And, you know, how many times has something happened to you that you blame somebody else for? Like, how many times have you looked at something and you said, oh, it's definitely that person's fault? And let me give you the, let me give you an example of, what I see all the time in Facebook groups with a, a videographer will take a tripod, set it in the middle of the ceremony aisle, and then just point it straight at the couple and leave it there and then make a post that, oh, the photographer walked in front of my shot. And then everybody was like, oh yeah, I can't believe the photographer walked in front of their shot. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. So if you want to apply extreme ownership to that, as the videographer that put the tripod in the middle of the ceremony aisle, you should probably be thinking to yourself, why did I put it in the middle of the ceremony aisle? Knowing that there are other vendors that are going to be walking up and down the aisle, including myself. Isn't there a better place where I can put the camera? And the answer is unequivocally yes. So at the end of the day, that's your fault. You should not have put the camera there. You should be able to anticipate what's going to happen and understand that a photographer is going to walk up and down the aisle. It's a wedding. So with that being said, you're probably saying, well, Phil, if you're so smart, where would you put the camera? I'll tell you exactly where I put the camera. If you go to the very last row, you set the camera up about in the middle. You get a nice tight shot of them going at about a 45 degree angle, cutting across people's heads and that kind of stuff. You will notice that you can walk up and down the aisle pretty much unobtrusively with a shot like that. It's that simple. You don't need to overthink it. You need to adapt. 
do a lessons learned, sit back and say, what could I have done differently to have avoided that situation? And then you'll learn from it. And that's exactly where we keep our base camera. Now, you, you really need to start changing your mindset and own what is going on around you. You need to own what other people are doing that is going to impact your business. Because if you tell a couple, oh, the photographer walked in front of my safe camera, so I can't give you a ceremony edit. They're not going to care because that's your fault. You need to start really evaluating what you're doing and what you can do differently to improve and stop pointing the finger at other people and saying, hey, this is their fault. That photographer should have known better because that's not how this works. And the other issue is, is it's rarely the other person's fault. So one thing, so I, I used to work in nuclear. I worked at nuclear power plants for about a decade and you, uh, you start to do what's called, you have a parent cause analysis, you have root cause analysis, that kind of stuff. And one thing that you learn when you're going through, you know, root cause training and that kind of stuff is it's very rarely the person's fault. And what I mean by that is a lot of managers jump right to the point of, Hey, so-and-so made this mistake. It's their fault. You know, they should be suspended. They should be punished for it in some, in some way, shape or form. It's very rare that you have something that's that egregious. A lot of times you will find out when you're starting to, if you break yourself of that mindset that it's the other person's, that it's that person's fault, and you start to take a, take a step back and look at like the 80,000 foot level. And you're like, well, what, what, well, let's look at the procedures. What do the procedures say for doing, you know, whatever you're, you're cranking a wrench on umpty squat, you know, safety component. What does the procedure say with doing that? You know, is the procedure circle slash? Is it information use? And I know I'm saying a bunch of things that a lot of people don't understand because they weren't nuclear, but was, is it a training issue? Did the guy just not know? Like there is a lot of stuff that you have to go through before you get to, it was just the other person's fault. And that starts to break you of the, uh, Hey, so-and-so did it. It's their fault. We can move on because you start to realize that, Hey, you know, our training procedures are jacked up. Um, our, our operational procedures are jacked up. They need to be fixed. They weren't clear enough. We didn't do a good safety brief. We didn't do a good pre-job brief, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll notice I'm throwing all this stuff out here because as a wedding filmmaker, you should be talking to your crew before you start work. You should be doing some kind of brief. People should understand their roles and responsibilities. Your team should have clear cut guidance on what they are doing. You as the leader should ensure that that team knows what they are doing, meaning you've tested them, you trained them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, it's your responsibility. And even if it's a team of two, I'm glad my wife's not down here right now because she'd be giving me the strangest look because she's like, wait a second, you, you ain't going to do this to me. So it's even if you got a two man team, if you are in charge, it is your fault. And you just you need to swallow that, understand it, and then improve. So uh, that's also applies to second shooters, third shooters, fourth shooters, your assistants, whatever it is. 
that applies to everyone universally. If I am a second shooter and I did something wrong, at the end of the day, the the DP or you know your your primary shooter, that kind of stuff, we should be in a full-blown argument over whose fault it was and what we are doing to ensure it will never happen again. That is extreme ownership. You both need to own the issue. You both need to improve. But remember, at the end of the day, it's always the leader's fault. That's the price for being a leader. All right, so we're going to take a break. After the break, we're going to talk about some examples of where we've personally went through things that we've, you know, used extreme ownership to adapt and overcome and figure out what's going on. And then what what you should be thinking about moving forward. So we will talk to, we will talk about that right after this break. Do you still email a PDF for a contract? Are you struggling to remember who you sent files to or what those files were? You need a solid CRM, a customer relation management tool, a program that will send professional files and contracts all on your behalf. One that does not need to be printed, signed, and emailed back. Is this the Stone Age? You need HoneyBook. We've been using them for years now, and it increased our productivity by taking menial tasks and automating them. You can set up custom workflows to automatically send emails, payment reminders, thank you responses, etc. You can send brochures, questionnaires, and invoices too. We have three set up. One for when a couple inquires, one for after a call with a couple, and one for a booked wedding with nine steps. That saves us so much time on the back end. What would you do with more time? Spend more time with your family, spend more time working on creative projects, or just simply relaxing. Use our affiliate link below to save 50% on your first year. Go ahead, it's on us. Start saving time and money today. All right, everybody, welcome back from break. Uh, Like I said before we split, we're going to be talking about examples of what we do differently as a business and an organization uh, when we kind of embrace this extreme ownership mentality. So the biggest thing is first you need to come to grips with with your actions. You need to understand that your actions are going to determine your success. That's it your skill level, that kind of stuff is going to determine your success. That's not something that anybody else is going to impact. If you want to be successful, it's on you. And what you need to do is realize that, come to grips with it, and then say to yourself, what can I do to improve? I know this is a hard pill to swallow. It's a really hard introspective reality, but that is just the way of the game. Uh, I shot my first wedding with one camera. It worked. It was okay. But I knew that I had missed a ton of moments. I didn't know really what I was doing. I ran around with one camera on a gimbal all day, which I'm pretty sure gave me some permanent nerve damage in my left hand. Uh, But you know, did I catch every moment of the ceremony? No, of course not. I was only using one camera. Uh, did I miss out on moments of the, the first dances, that kind of stuff? Of course I did. I only had one camera. Now I shot the wedding for free, but after I got back and started looking at everything in the editing room, I said to myself, you know, did I wallow in my own self-pity and say, Hey, uh, 
I can't believe, you know, how bad this was. If only I had more money, I'd get another camera and et cetera, et cetera. No, I sat down and I said, look, I know now shooting a wedding with one camera, just it, you're not going to create that great a product. What can I do differently to fix this moving forward? So I rose our prices and started to rent. I knew that I would need to rent another camera, that I would need to rent additional gear, uh, and that I would have to get other things in order to push me into a more successful position. So uh, there's another podcast we're going to be talking about renting equipment and that kind of stuff, but we rose our prices. I added the price of the equipment cost to our base price so that that way we can start to create a better product. I didn't sit around and, you know, mull over the fact that I missed stuff and, you know, I, I beat myself up on that stuff all the time. I don't need to keep doing it. But now we shoot with a safe camera, uh, we shoot with two wing cameras and then me wandering around with a, a gimbal. And why we do that is because we want to make sure that we have an unobstructed angle at any given point during the ceremony, which we do. So now I don't need to be concerned about a photographer walking in the way. I know that I have my safe camera set up where they're not going to be in the way. And I know that I have two others that I can fall back on in case they are. Not to mention the one that I have on the gimbal. Uh, you know, it's really important to realize that everyone that's at a wedding has a job to do, including the photographer. That job is taking pictures. And if that job requires them to walk down the center aisle, then they have to walk down the center aisle. That should be expected. So don't get, don't get all wrapped around the axle because the photographer is walking up and down the middle of the aisle and don't blame them for walking in front of your camera. I can't stress that enough. Do not put the camera in the center aisle. Now that I'm off of that tangent, uh, we started to really sit down and evaluate what was going on, adapt to our mistakes. We started learning from our mistakes. I still make mistakes. Uh, you know, let, let's talk about, <clears throat> I was shooting a wedding a couple of weeks ago and the so we, I, they're, they're, they're on a boat. They're on a yacht. There's not a whole lot of room on a yacht. To be honest with you, I've never shot on the top floor of a yacht before. So is that my fault? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I probably should have looked up more information on this, this yacht and figured out what was going on before I got there. That's one mistake that I made. Uh, when I got there, I realized that I could put the safe camera back in the last aisle, have it shooting over everybody's head and get a nice view of downtown Boston from the harbor, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then I found a little spot with my monopod off to the right where I could have a, a camera that was on a uh, 150 looking down, you know, towards the bride. And then I would have my third camera on the gimbal just going up and down the aisle, trying to get some good reaction shots, et cetera, et cetera. What, um... Did, did I have a conversation with the officiant? Of course I did. I sat down, chatted with her for a second, make sure that she got mic'd up, made sure that the audio was good. You know, I could see the levels on the camera, et cetera, et cetera. And everything was smooth sailing. She had mentioned to me that she was really nervous, that she had gotten uh, her license the day before. She's a family member, so it was really important to her that she did a good job, et cetera, et cetera. 
she never had the couples or the guests sit down. We'll make that abundantly clear. They never sat down for the entire ceremony. So both of those cameras were completely blocked. And there's nothing I can do about that. Now, should I have had a better pre-job brief with her? Yep. You know why? You know why that's my fault? Because I'm the experienced vendor. I'm the one that knows how these typically work. That was her first wedding ever. So did I set her up for success? Nope. Is anybody going to notice that they should be sitting? No, because they were never told to sit down. Period. So I had a third camera, you know, the one on the gimbal that I sat down in the middle aisle, pulled everything up. Uh, That's on a 50 millimeter lens. So I got a nice wide shot of the entire ceremony. Ceremony was 10 minutes. Uh, But that's my fault. That's my fault for not sitting down and just having a few minute, you know, conversation with her about, you know, hey, you know what, why don't you give me a couple more details about what you plan on doing? And she was so nervous, she never really looked up from her notes. So do I get mad at her for not telling people to sit down? No, of course not. I learned from it. I know that I need to have a better pre-job brief with people before we start doing this to avoid a situation like that again. And if I wouldn't, have had my third camera, then I wouldn't have been able to record the ceremony. It would have just been, it would have been a nightmare. So there's one. We were doing a wedding where the DJ seemed frazzled, to say the least. There was no audio for the ceremony, period. There was no microphone. There was no speakers. There was nothing for the ceremony, which, okay. We have Tascam DR10Ls. You know, we have uh, Zooms. I got a wireless, you know, uh, video mic pro or the wireless go. So I, I have enough ancillary audio to cover myself in case something like that happens. Fast forward. It's time for the toasts. The timeline that was given to me was the couple would do their grand entrance. They would do the first dance. They would do the parent dances. And then they'd sit down, kind of relax for a minute. And then they would get up and people would, you know, they would do the toasts uh, shortly afterwards. What happened in reality was the couple came in. They did the first dance. And then they went right into the toasts. Now, for those of you who really understand how to light toasts, how to light dances, that kind of stuff, you know that you probably only have two lights on you. Like that's normally what what we carry is two lights. And you need a couple minutes to get that transition from the, the dance lights that you're using to get them situated to the toast lights because you want to make sure the couple's lit right. You want to make sure the speaker's lit right. Like there's certain things that we do for toasts, which I'm going to do a podcast on in general. That, you know, we, we want to make sure that the toasts look the best that they can, because that's a very big part of the wedding video. I had no idea that that was about to happen. I had to physically, I, I told him to, Hey, can you hang out for just give me one minute? Let me get, let me get some stuff resituated, et cetera, et cetera. I need to get, need to get a camera moved. I need to get some audio set up, you know, 
That's just so I had to, you know, put a stop to things for a couple of minutes. As that starts to progress, the DJ hands the speaker, because I, I, I tell the speaker where they're going to be standing, which is pretty much squared up with the couple. And I was like, you know, just stand right here. Like I get the lights set up and all that happy jazz. And then the speaker, or I mean the, the DJ, I kid you not, has a two foot cable, an XLR cable from his board to the mic. So I want to make this, if you're watching on YouTube, it's about that long. So everybody speaking was pretty much sitting on his desk. Did that throw everything into a wrench? Of course it did. Because I had cameras set up and lights set up for people to be standing in a completely different spot. So right now you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that guy sounds like a, like a not very talented DJ. And I'm going to tell you where extreme ownership comes in with that. Did I communicate effectively with that guy? No, obviously I didn't. Because things had changed and I didn't know about it. And whose responsibility is it to know about it? It's mine. I'm the one that's shooting the video. So there's my first mistake. My second mistake is while the people were talking, because they're only a foot away from the speaker at this point, I have a wireless uh, video mic pro on the microphone to record the audio and just shoot it straight back to the camera. Well, my audio was clipping. No matter how low I turned it, the audio was clipping because the volume from the speaker is at like a hundred and it's just blowing down onto the mic. So do I have problems? Yes. I have a lot of problems with this video right now. I ain't gonna lie. Uh, the, you might say to yourself, well, the DJ, the DJ didn't turn the audio down. And yes, you are correct. The DJ did not turn the audio down. I just lost my light behind me. The DJ didn't turn the audio down. However, um, I didn't do enough to control the audio. That's my fault. And I learned from that. I learned from that in a ton of different ways. Uh, one is I bought this bad boy because I'm not doing that again. I can't stress that enough. I'm not doing that again. This is an XLR splitter. So I talk about that in the equipment episode. This is a million dollar piece of equipment right here. This will give you a clean, unbalanced feed directly from the microphone. And there is nothing that the DJ can do to that feed because it splits the input of the mic. So there's input, output, output. There's, you put the mic in the input and it gives a clean, unbalanced feed to both outputs, period. So no matter what is going on with the loudness of that speaker, with him dumping bass into it or doing something crazy, none of that will get to your sound device because you have a completely independent, clean feed. It's not those, you know, $2 Y XLR thing. That's a $35 piece of equipment off Amazon. And that right there would have avoided the entire mess that happened. All of that could have been avoided. 
I would have had perfect audio. I could have got, it wouldn't have mattered where they were standing. I could have adjusted to that real quick. But now instead of thinking about what I could do beforehand, yeah, that's the other thing. You really don't want to learn afterwards. You want to make sure that you're staying ahead of the game. So take it from me, buy one of these $35 boxes. It's from a company called Galaxy Audio, Jacks in the Box. It's a jib Y splitter. And if I would have had that, we would have had good clean audio. There would have been no issues with the audio whatsoever. So now I got to deal with video that's kind of jacked up and audio that's jacked up, which takes a lot of time to fix. So you don't want to be in that position. Uh, You know, another thing that we did is we were shooting a wedding in a really small church and I went up to the second story, was getting a camera set up to be our safe cam. And I, I took that camera on the second story of this nice, nice little church. And I put a 150 millimeter zoom lens on it. And I punched it right in on the couple as they were sitting in two chairs next to each other. And then I had a camera, uh, in the middle, my gimbal that was just going straight down the aisle. Cause there were no flanks. And then off to the right was a little choir area. So Brittany had a camera that was going, you know, kind of in an angle. When I got done with the job and I get back home and I'm looking at all the footage, I'm just staring at it, wondering why I took my safe camera and put a 150 millimeter lens on it and just stared at two empty chairs for the majority of the ceremony because they were standing in front. And that's when reality hit me that in my rush to get everything put together and that kind of stuff, I never once thought to myself like, Hey, I should probably switch out to like a 50 millimeter lens or 35 millimeter lens and get this nice, like beautiful wide shot of the church. And that's not anyone else's fault, but mine. Something else that was actually pretty funny about that ceremony though, was Brittany had a camera with a tripod that was just fixed on the officiant and some other people. And she never left it. She was horrified to move. It was really funny. She just, she refused to move from that spot because she would have had to walk in front of a couple people before she could come back down the aisle. Cause there, there were, there was physically no side aisles. It just went pews to the walls and that was it. So that was, that was pretty funny. She was kind of frozen in fear in the corner and I've got a 150 up on a ceiling and, and that was, that was a good day. But What's important is that I learned from it and now I have a completely different angle with my safe camera and I use it like that because of that incident, because I said, Hey, I don't want to do that again. Uh, I had seen in another video where somebody was just, they were talking about how they couldn't find a good spot to put a microphone on an officiant or the officiant didn't want to wear the microphone or something like that. They didn't really know what to do. So they took a light stand, they took an H6, put the two stereo, you know, ends on it, boosted it all the way up to a speaker in the church and just put it right in front of the church, in front of the church speaker. So they were recording all the audio just right out of that speaker. And I was like, man, that is a really good idea. So I kind of just mentally jotted that down. And I go to a wedding a few weeks ago in downtown Boston, and they don't have XLR inputs in the Catholic church. There's no way to hook up a uh, an H6, an H4. There's no way to get anything like that in, in the service whatsoever. So I said, what can I do? And I stopped and I said, oh, that dude had put 
uh, H6 right in front of a speaker. I said, well, mine's wireless. So I took a lav mic and I draped it over the side of the second story balcony and it just dropped perfectly right in front of one of the speakers. And that actually created, that recorded the audio that we wound up using in the final ceremony because it sounded the best out of everything. It came out really good. And the reason why is because I watched somebody else and I said to myself, man, I should really use that if I need to. And we did. So, you know, I just to kind of recap that because it was a ton of stuff. I've made a lot of mistakes. Everyone will make mistakes. What separates you from everyone else is what you do after you make the mistake. You have to adapt. You have to figure out what you need to do differently and you have to move forward at that point. That's it. So let's talk for a minute on uh, what you should do, you know, moving forward. First and foremost, even if you are a one-man team, you need to lead. You need to remember that you are ultimately responsible for everything that happens with that video, period. That's it. You need to realize that you will make mistakes. Don't blame other people when you make those mistakes. Do an introspective look. Say, what could I have done differently? and learn from it and move forward. You, you know, your second shooter didn't frame something right. Is it their fault? Nope. It's your brand and it's your responsibility to make sure that that brand is successful. It all falls on you, the leader. It's your responsibility to give them the tools and the training that they need to be successful. Did your memory card die while you were, while you were doing a wedding? Is that the memory card's fault? Probably not. This is going to sound really crazy. Can you dual record? If you can't, how long have you had that memory card? Have you ever done any preventative maintenance testing on that card? Which I don't even know if this is a thing. But in nuclear, we had to do PMT on all of our equipment all the time to ensure that it was operable. So if you're using a memory card that's 10 years old, I'd highly recommend getting a new one. That's just my personal opinion. You need to make sure that your equipment is in good working order. It's not the memory card's fault. And it's not an issue of the card. It's an issue of what you are doing with your equipment. You really need to change your mindset and do deep dives on issues. If you have a failure, you need to ask yourself what you can be doing differently to fix it. And I'm being dead serious. This applies to every industry across the board you you need to have what's called an after action report with your team. So if you if you get done shooting, I would highly recommend that if you're shooting with a team of two, three, that kind of stuff, that you review your footage and you immediately start talking about your footage and that kind of stuff right off the bat. When Brittany and I get home from a wedding, we sit down, we upload all of the footage that night. We get everything on the chargers that night and I get all the audio offloaded that night. I'm listening to the audio to make sure it sounds good. It sounds clean. I'm flipping through clips, making sure they look good. And then we start to discuss clips that don't look that good. What went wrong? What can we do differently? What can we do to improve? As you shoot, you should be doing these things either by yourself 
or with your team so that you can continuously improve. If you are continuously improving, you will continuously be raising your prices. That's how that cycle works. Uh, it's, It's really important that you take a hard look at each one of your weddings. You take notes, you say, hey, I'm not going to set a camera up on the second story again with the 150. That was a really, really horrible decision on my part. I'm not going to rely on the DJ's audio. I'm not going to allow someone else to dictate the battle space to me. I am in control of what's going on here. Because at the end of the day, the couple is not going to care what the DJ did. The couple is going to care what's in their video. So it is your responsibility to ensure that you are getting the best stuff possible. And you start to embrace these things of extreme ownership, and then you start to really see them more and more and more. You realize that you're not saying, hey, my second shooter should have done X. You're saying, nope, I should have done something differently. Like, that's just the way that this works. So just kind of wrap things up. I, I can't stress how much, you know, you need to be in control of your own destiny. You need to be the one that is, you know, I don't want to say in command, but you need to be the one that is kind of guiding what's going on. Ceremonies are important. Speeches are important. You know, those kind of things, you really need to be in control of everything that is happening around you, whether that's having multiple cameras for the ceremony to ensure you always have a good shot, whether that's having a little splitter box like this to ensure that you're getting the best audio period, uh, you need to be like that. That is your bread and butter. So you, you've got to maintain your own destiny. You got to remember that you are the one responsible for your team. You're the one that's responsible for your company and you're the one that is responsible for your brand. It's that simple. You got to own what you do. Don't blame others. You need to look at yourself and figure out what you can do differently for the next time. You need to embrace, embrace this extreme ownership principle you need to prioritize and ex- execute. All right, go get some. All right, so if you like this video, please like and subscribe. You know, be sure to join our private Facebook group, Wedding Filmmaking for Beginners. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Hit that bell notification. Shoot me an email. You know, let me know how things are going. Let me know how you're embracing extreme ownership. And uh, let's, all, let's all get out there. All right, everybody. Bye. Are you looking at a really nice camera you can't afford? Are you wondering how companies afford six red Monstro 8K cameras and all the trimmings? You need to make more money so you can buy one. No, I'm kidding. You need to rent. Renting equipment is way easier than you think. You can ship it all back and forth from your house and it's way cheaper than buying. Best of all, you should include the rental cost in your pricing to pass on the expense because you're shooting with better gear. Wouldn't it be great to use something other than a Canon SL2 for your next project? Run a Sony a7S 3 or a Canon 1DX Mark III. You don't need to buy them. We rent additional cameras, lighting gear, and audio equipment all the time from Borrow Lenses. We've never had a late shipment or anything other than an awesome experience with their customer service. Use our affiliate link below to get renting today and you'll have professional equipment tomorrow.